The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So the theme of the day is the deconstructing of Buddhism. And I'd like to start just by suggesting what that might mean. First of all, let's imagine Buddhism itself in the widest possible sense. One image that I think is not inaccurate is to imagine an enormous building, perhaps like some of these old European chateaux or castles that have grown up over centuries from what might have started out and I'll put this into the example of English architecture that might have started out as a, a Norman in other words an 11th century keep just a very simple structure and then in subsequent generations subsequent dynasties the things would have the earlier pieces would have perhaps fallen into disrepair they would have been patched up again and at times of great wealth of power then later rulers would have added further rooms maybe wings put on an additional story or two then we get into say the 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 renaissance or the baroque periods and they come along and add a few rather exotic-looking turrets. (laughs) And in the 19th century, perhaps, also, they modernized the whole thing a bit, put in plumbing and so forth. Until we have what we now see today is this grand edifice um, with different layers, different periods and styles of architecture, uh, some of which seem to go quite well together, Maybe other elements are less congruous, tend to conflict a bit. But when we behold this edifice, it's almost impossible sometimes to be able to, uh, to see, at least at first glance, the foundations upon which the whole building was constructed in the first place. In other words, later embellishments and detail tend to obscure and hide um, the foundations upon which the whole building is constructed. Now Buddhism, I think, in its broadest sense, is a bit like that. So when, for example, we go into a, a Tibetan monastery or we go to a Zen temple in Japan, or we go to Bangkok and we go to one of the great Watts, huge rambling buildings. The initial impression might be very um, uh, moving or we might find it rather garish or rather over the top. And once again, we have a, a similar metaphor. If we think of Buddhism as a whole, then it seems to me that this great edifice is not just the edifice of any one particular school. In fact, I think that the big picture Buddhism 
we have to include all the regional and cultural diversities that have informed what we think of Buddhism today. And so I think particularly here in North America or in Europe, Buddhism has, has entered into our culture in enormously diverse ways. Unlike in Asia or in a given Asian country where only one tradition really would have ever prevailed, here in the West we have access to Tibetan teachings, Zen teachings, Theravada teachings. And that's not even to mention what numerically are probably more, um, <clears throat> more established forms, namely Japanese pure land, for example, which is the dominant form of Buddhism as practiced amongst ethnic Jap Japanese Americans or the ethnic Chinese American community and their temples and monasteries and so forth and so on. So we encounter a very um, <clears throat> elaborate uh, superstructure of all of these different elements. And it's sometimes very confusing um, to uh, be able to answer a question such as, well, what is Buddhism? When we're aware of all of these different things. And attempts have been made. I was involved in a number of pan-Buddhist groups in Britain when I lived there in the 1980s and 90s. And we used to have these meetings and we would try to define what it was that we had in common that could constitute a kind of public definition of what Buddhism was. And, of course, we never were able to arrive at such a definition. Now, in terms of, of deconstructing Buddhism, my idea is to uh, dismantle this structure somewhat. But I don't want this to be seen as a kind of aggressive destruction in other words, saying, oh, all of this is just Asian culture, we don't need any of this, let's clear it all away. No, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't in any sense wish to do that. But what I would like to try to find are the original foundations or some of the very earliest structures upon which the edifice eventually grew. One of the great richnesses of the Buddhist tradition or Buddhist culture is the fact that it is so diverse that we have such an elaborate superstructure. And this to me is a sign of the tradition's vitality. That every country into which Buddhism has gone, Tibet, Korea, Japan, Burma, Thailand, etc., it has managed to establish forms both institutions and doctrines that respond appropriately to the needs of the peoples of those times and those places and has created other schools and so on that have flourished often for hundreds of years and continue to flourish today. But simply by making that observation, we're also uh, acknowledging uh, that Buddhism is, uh, is not a fixed static thing. That it actually is something that evolves and grows uh, somewhat like an organism. And here the architectural metaphor breaks down. 
that Buddhism, I feel, um, is not just a set of, of doctrines or institutional structures, but essentially it is a way of life. It is a form of living. Buddhism only can really exist of if people are, in whatever ways they feel appropriate, putting it into practice. They are embodying its ideas and its values in the context of their specific lives. And Buddhism only survives by being translated into your life or lives of people just like us throughout the whole, throughout Asia particularly, over the last two and a half thousand years. So we are part of the, of the um, evolution, the development, the future of what Buddhism will subsequently become. It also, um, by looking at this idea of it building up these great big superstructures, uh, shows that um, it never remains completely uh, stuck in a particular form. That Buddhism survives not by preserving something, a particular branch of the superstructure, a certain style of architecture, but it survives by being sufficiently flexible to adapt itself to changing, to changing circumstances. Now all of this um, <clears throat> is, I think, illustrative of some of the core ideas within the Buddha's teaching itself. You have this famous verse in the Dharmapada, and it's a, an idea that runs throughout the tradition, Sabha Sankara Anicca, Sabha Sankara Dukkha, Sabha Dharma Anatta, which means all conditioned things are impermanent, all conditioned things are dukkha, suffering, painful, unsatisfactory, unreliable, poignant, tragic, a word that captures all of that and a lot more. We'll probably come back to this. And sabadama anatta, all uh, things, all phenomena, are not self. They're not me, they're not mine. There's something impersonal about them, that they don't have an essential identity or nature, that they are fluid, they are fluctuating, and they are contingent, conditional upon elements, things, people, cultures, that are not themselves. In other words, a core teaching is the idea of the contingent or the conditional nature of experience. Now, although Buddhism constantly reiterates that point, traditionally, it um, has not evolved a self-critical discourse. In other words, a discourse that applies those insights to itself. And although it's never stated so explicitly, everything is impermanent and dukkha and anatta, except my particular brand of Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> And we don't want that to be impermanent. And we don't want to think of it as imperfect or unsatisfactory. And we definitely don't want to think of it as not mine. Now this is where the human tendency to, you know, to, to, to dogmatism and to sectarianism takes root. But 
one of the things that may characterize uh, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, um, in uh, modern Western culture is that we cannot but bring uh, our, uh, a sense of historical consciousness to the phenomenon of Buddhism itself. Rather than thinking that the Dharma is something that we have to preserve, we recognize that the Dharma is something that is as contingent and as conditional and changing and fluid as everything else that it talks about. If, for example, um, we were to run a little thought experiment and I were to present to you in this room, standing there on the right, there is da-da-da Rinpoche, Tibetan Lama of the Nyingma school, an adept in the Dzogchen teachings, and he's got a thigh-bone trumpet as well, and he does all these weird rituals. In the middle, we have Reverend um, Sumana, something or other from Sri Lanka, Bhikkhu in robes, holding a bowl, serene, mindful of whatever is happening before him. And to our right, we have Reverend Uchiyama from Japan, who is a Pure Land priest, and he lives in Kobe, and he has um, a congregation of lay Japanese business people, and he spends most of his time going to their houses, reciting sutras and praying for the dead. Now, if you were asked, you know, why are these representatives of Buddhism so different in their appearance, in their practices, um, in their institutions, in their beliefs, I suspect that most of us would say, well, that's obvious. He comes from Tibet, this fellow is from Sri Lanka, and this chap is Japanese. And the differences really reflect the different cultures that have um, given rise to these different forms. I suspect that for most of us that seems like an obvious answer. We might actually be puzzled as to why it would even be posed as a question. But if you were to ask a traditional Buddhist from an Asian country who hasn't, let's say, been exposed to the Western ideas of historical consciousness, their answer might be rather different. In fact, I've had these discussions with both Tibetan lamas and with Korean monks, and there, for them, the obvious answer as to why these people hold such different views and practices is because one of them, usually themselves, has got Buddhism right, and the others haven't. (laughs) In other words, um, well, our tradition, we have the lineage that goes back to what the Buddha actually said, and we've kept that and preserved it over the generations, and we we have this unbroken, pure line of authority that validates what we do. Each of these people would say the same, but they would, you know, argue for different lines of authority. But they wouldn't see, at least at first glance, their their differences being because of their cultural and historical circumstances, but rather because of the legitimacy or otherwise of the doctrines and teachings and practices that they have in their schools. Um, I remember I made a presentation once to the Dalai Lama at a conference in Dharamsala in which I basically told told him what I just told you. And I was rather worried that you know, that would be so self-evident it would not really be worthy of being a presentation to such a, um, a wise and, 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 and uh, intelligent man. 
Uh, he found the whole idea kind of novel and slightly puzzling. <laughs> and in fact, he, um, he, and he asked for an example. I said, well, look at the way the Buddha is represented in Japan. He looks like a Japanese. Look at the way he's represented in Tibet. He looks like a Tibetan. And he turned around and he pointed to a tanka behind him and he said, but look, you know, our Buddha here, this is Indian. And um, my wife said afterwards that um, that image looked no more Indian than her granny in Bordeaux. <laughs> now this was one of those uh, sort of uh, mind-stopping moments. It shows that although we seem to be talking about the same things and experiencing the world in a similar way, we read it and interpret it quite differently. We can't assume that we somehow read the world in the same way or read Buddhism in the same way. In any case, that's a bit of a digression. Going back to my example of this great big superstructure of Buddhism, what I want to do is to, is to, is to respectfully start dismantling it, not destroying it, in order to get back to what seems to be the foundational basis for it. And this, clearly, is also part of our historical consciousness. Um, we go, we, 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 I suspect, as Westerners, we're, we're curious as to who the Buddha as a human person might have been. What was he like? What sort of world did he live in? I've, I've been fascinated by this question for many, many years. And I've always been drawn to those books, uh, historical studies of Buddhism, that try to sort of illuminate the conditions under which the Buddha himself taught, his world. And um, by a happy coincidence, much of the, my recent the book I've just published is, a, is the result of my research in these areas trying to reconstruct the life of the historical Buddha within his social and political time. But I don't think that's been something that's ever been of any interest to traditional Buddhists. They've never bothered to do that. It's not as though the materials weren't there to enable them to do it. They, such materials do exist. Historical fragments scattered through the Pali Canon. But it's never been anything of any interest at all. They've preferred to simply keep repeating the rather mythic account of the prince in the palace going outside the city walls, seeing the corpse and the old person and the sick person and the wandering monk and renouncing the world and then struggling through all these meditation practices and then eventually becoming the Buddha, teaching for 45 years and dying. I'm interested in the 45 years. Also, I'm aware that the story we currently have of the prince in the palace is a myth. The earliest texts not only uh, do not um, support that reading, they actually contradict it. We can come back to that later, perhaps. But again, that's another example of deconstruction. We're, when, when we start to study some of these stories, some of these teachings we find that they don't actually have the sort of basis or authority in the early canon that we kind of assumed that they did. So what I'd like to do today is to, is to experiment 
and I'm going to be focusing on a fairly narrow range of, of ideas, which you'll be familiar with, and try to get back to the source of where they came from. And the aim of this exercise, at least for myself, is by, by coming back to the basics, the ground, as clearly as we can to what the Buddha probably said and who he was as a person, I feel that in our culture today we have um, a sounder basis for building anew a vision of what the Dhamma means for, for, for us who live in the 21st century. Now I'd like to start with um, a, a little quiz. And you'll see where I'm getting at, hopefully, by this question. I'm going to read you out a passage, a couple of passages, from um, canonical works within the, the Sutta uh, um, Pitaka, the, the, the basket of discourses in the Pali Canon. But one key term, or one key phrase, I'm going to simply substitute with X. And I want you to guess what X is. Now, if anyone in this room has done this exercise before and knows the answer, I'd, 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 I'd ask you to be quiet. <laughs> this is one passage. As long as my knowledge and vision... This is the Buddha speaking. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about X... I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. Awakening or peerless enlightenment in this world. So this is the Buddha describing his enlightenment. It was as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about X, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world clearly a rather important point. <laughs> if the teachings of the Dhamma, Buddhism, are of course, and I'm sure none of us would question this, founded upon the Buddha's enlightenment. If the Buddha hadn't got enlightened, if he hadn't become the Buddha, we wouldn't have Buddhism. So this is, I, I, I would argue, a rather key point. This is, again, this is from Sangyutta Nikaya. <clears throat> Whoever in the past, the present, or the future, that's us, becomes fully awakened to things, does so by becoming fully awakened to X. Now in both passages, X is the same. And I want you to tell me what it is. <laughs> yes. Self. Self. Truth. Suffering, two, two sufferings, so suffering one, suffering two. <laughs> Impermanence. 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 Dependent origination. Dependent origination. Reality. Reality. Don't be shy. <laughs> yes. uh, things as they are. Things as they are. Contingency. Well, that's the same as dependent origination, isn't it? The Four Noble Truths. Yes? Emptiness. Emptiness. You can have a second go if you want. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, 
I assume most of you have studied Buddhism for some time, and it seems to be a rather central point. So, we, so far what we've realized is we don't all agree on what this is. Anything else? Anyone else like to have a go? Okay, we'll stop there. Well, um, this is... Um, <clears throat> one person got it right. <clears throat> um, the, the majority of the answers um, are the ones that usually come up when I... I've done this before. I've done it all over the world. And this is very characteristic of what happens. Um, in fact, it's actually quite rare that even one person gets it right. The correct answer is the Four Noble Truths. Now, the, the, the next best answer is dependent arising or dependent origination or contingency. But the text actually says the Four Noble Truths. Now, if you're surprised by that, then I think one should ask oneself, why am I surprised by that? Why, have I not, why has that not been registered before? Why is the... Um, <clears throat> you see, apart from the Four Noble Truths, um, all the other answers that came up were, were, were similar in that they pointed to one thing, impermanence, suffering. Suffering, again, is, is again close-ish, because that is the First Noble Truth. But um, emptiness, reality, truth... Um, impermanence. It seems, seems to suggest that our default or our instinctive, intuitive um, uh, assumption as to what awakening is about is awakening to one privileged element of reality or reality itself that um, triggers this awakening or this enlightenment and therefore I can only um, assume that this implies that when we practice meditation or we consider ourselves as practicing the Dharma or when we consider ourselves likewise seeking to be awake, to be enlightened like the Buddha, we consider that to have to do with our waking up to one aspect of experience. So why is this the case? I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that um, we're probably predisposed to consider the Buddha's awakening as a sort of mystical experience. And we might think of the image of the Buddha seated beneath the tree as uh, comparable to an exper uh, the experience of great uh, enlightened people throughout the world. And there is also a tendency, perhaps quite pronounced in certain areas of our Vipassana community, where we'll cite the Buddha and then we'll talk about Rumi or um, some great Indian master or Lao Tzu or Jesus. And all of them, we like to think, have had a very similar experience. This is technically called universalism. Uh, in other words, all religions are just different ways of talking about the same reality or truth. And although they sound a bit different, 
some of them, some of them terribly different. The Buddhists say there is no self and they get enlightened and somebody else says there is a self and they get enlightened too. So <laughs> there's a problem, obviously, but we can somehow try to juggle that so that, in fact, people who say opposite things we can believe are actually saying the same. That's a problem. <laughs> so that, I think, is one um, reason why we tend... Uh, our knee-jerk response is to think it must be one single reality of some kind. The other reason I think we say, uh, we're t- we, where we are prone to say this, is because that is what many Buddhist teachers will say. Uh, not just contemporary uh, teachers we might listen to in this room, but traditions themselves. When I was trained as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, uh, this was in the Geluk school, um, this would not have been the answer that my Tibetan lamas would, would, would have given. They would have said, and I was trained to see this in this way, that the Buddha became the Buddha because he awoke to, in, this, in the Geluk school, an emptiness, shunyata, the absence of inherent existence, which is synonymous with dependent origination. In, other, in my Zen training, the Buddha was awakened by understanding the true nature of mind, of citta, of shin, which is not our ordinary, everyday, muddled, coming and going consciousness, but some greater awareness or uh, spiritual reality that is tapped into by breaking through in meditation to this higher truth. So, the, the, so Orthodox Buddhism, in many of its schools, uh, uh, reinforces this instinctive assumption that the Buddha woke up to some element of reality. The answers that weren't given, nobody said the unconditioned, nobody said the deathless, nobody said nirvana, and these would be the I think the sort of answers that would characterize uh, traditional Theravada Buddhism or early Buddhism, that the Buddha uh, experienced nirvana, the complete uh, cessation of craving and so forth and so on, was liberated thereby, or he understood the deathless, the unconditioned. Very often people will give those as answers too. And so we likewise find a tendency within Buddhist tradition itself, within the superstructure of the building, you can imagine from the windows are hanging little banners saying, liberation, the death. There used to be something up there. It said, I think it's about the Amma, the deathless or something. That's been removed. I don't know why. It's covered up. Okay. You see this, right? Exactly. <laughs> but again, you see the the, the deathless is 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 a, is a favourite um, of, of in the Theravada school, um, and I think all of these, in some ways, we might even see as kind of um, equivalents or substitutes for what, in a theistic tradition, we would call God. I think that's part of human nature 
to seek a higher truth, an absolute truth, that is not um, to do with the relative truths of this world. And that way of thinking, the distinction between what in Pali is called paramatasatya, ultimate truth, and samutisatya, or conventional or relative truth, is likewise become such a unquestioned uh, dogma. I'm not, not using the word dogma pejoratively. It just means a fixed view, a view that, that people don't generally question. And I'm sure you've all heard of it. The Buddhists speak of ultimate truth and relative truth. But you won't find those words in the discourses of the Pali Canon once. Buddha never used them. Ultimate truth, relative truth are part of the superstructure. They, they kind of got in on the ground floor <laughs> quite early on, but they're part of the superstructure, as is emptiness and all these things. They, they are really elements of the superstructure. When we get back to the, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 the ground floor, we get back to this idea uh, which is quite different to what we assume to be the case, namely the Buddha's awakening was the awakening to the Four Noble Truths. Now the first passage I read out is perhaps the more important one because this is not some obscure quote that I managed to track down on page 2302 of some relatively unknown Pali text. But this is the concluding paragraph of the Buddha's first discourse. Yes, I mean, this is not a minor text. <laughs> this is probably, this is the first teaching the Buddha is supposed to have given a few weeks after his awakening to his five ascetic companions, his five former companions in asceticism in the Deer Park at Sarnath. It's called the Dharma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the discourse on turning the wheel of Dhamma. Um, it's a text that all Buddhist traditions have translated into Tibetan, to Chinese, Japanese, and it is the Buddha's first discourse. So I think it deserves a certain degree of respect. And there at the conclusion of this, the Buddha says, and I'll read it out now in full, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about and in fact, he even elaborates. He says, the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> it's not even the Four Noble Truths. It's, it's even more complicated. The 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. Now, what is striking for me about this passage particularly when we realize it's the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, so in that sense, nobody got it right, is that rather than identify his awakening or enlightenment as having to do with gaining insight into some truth, he actually describes his awakening to be about four truths, and not only four truths, but 12 aspects of four truths. Now this, I think, is uh, something that is highly characteristic of the Buddha's uh, teaching that dis differentiates it from 
the religious culture of his day. Say a little bit about the religious culture of his day. The dominant um, philosophy of the priestly caste, the Brahmins, was found um, in these texts called the Upanishads. I'm sure you've heard of them. Sometimes these are called Vedanta, which means the culmination of the Vedas, which were the early hymns of the, of the Aryan settlers in the northern Gangetic plains. The Vedas and then the Upanishads. Upanishad means something like um, a teaching whispered to someone sitting close by, which again suggests the idea that um, in the Upanishadic tradition, the primary lineage of authority is that between a guru and his chela, his disciple. And the, and the good, good disciple is one who hears this, um, this sort of almost secret teaching uh, from his guru. And the secret teaching concerns the nature of Brahman Atman, self slash God. The, if you look in the, the Upanishads, um, and particularly those we know to have existed prior to the Buddha, and two of these would be the Brijaranika Upanishad and the Chandogya Upanishads, there you find the description of yogic or, or spiritual practice of tapas as having to do with uh, disassociating one's consciousness from the, the multiplicity and the plurality of the phenomenal world, which is considered somewhat illusory, and returning to the source of one's experience by turning inwards and touching or recovering union with the divine, Brahman. And in that moment, recognizing that what you truly are it's not your body or your mind or something you possess in the world or some social identity or whatever. But what you truly are is this um, transcendent unity or awareness that stems from the fun fundamental ground of all life, God, Brahman, the indivisible, the unknowable, the transcendent God. So that if you have such a deep experience, when you die, instead of being propelled into another rebirth, you will remain absorbed within the divine consciousness of God and you'll achieve immortality. Now the Buddha used this very word immortality, same word, but Western translators call it the deathless. Same word, immortality means not dying, and yet, for some reason, in Buddhism, we don't call it immortality, we call it the deathless in English. Same word in Sanskrit. Probably because there's a slightly uncomfortable idea that means I will become immortal. And since Buddhism is a bit skeptical about I, we think, hmm, that doesn't sound right. Let's call it the deathless instead. <clears throat> That's got a nice neutral feeling about it. <clears throat> but that was the standard term uh, used in the, uh, used in, in the uh, culture of the Buddha's time to refer to God, and particularly one's achieving union with God. So in other words, it's very much about a unitary 
consciousness, a unitary experience that is uh, radically not or radically different from the experience of plurality, which in, in the Upanishads is called Nama Rupa. Uh, we might come back to that because the Buddha also uses that term and gives it a very different twist. Now, what the Buddha does, and this is what I think makes his teaching so radical, is that he doesn't speak of awakening in terms of gaining access to some higher truth, whether you call it emptiness or whether you call it nirvana or whether you call it Brahman, but his awakening concerns um, an embrace, um, a participation in something complex, plural, and um, differentiated. Not in a state, but in a process. So, rather than use the word truth, I don't think the Buddha ever uses the word truth, certainly not with a capital T, but he talks of four truths. I think this is deliberately provocative. It's get, he seems to be deliberately going against the tendency to think of spiritual experience as about accessing the truth. No, four truths. And not only four truths, but twelve aspects of four truths. Similarly, we're probably um, you know, aware of how the Buddha speaks of the, of the human condition. He doesn't speak of it just in terms of, 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 of uh, consciousness, nor does he speak of it in terms of physical and mental experience, but he talks of it in terms of five aggregates, five skanda. I'm sure you've all probably come across this. And I remember when I first came across this, I would always ask myself, why five? Why five khandas? Why, does, why is this such a basic idea? Why doesn't he just talk about the body and the mind? And I think it's a similar move. It's a, it, it, he's pointing to the fact that when we start observing our experience, particularly with the tool of mindful attention, we start to notice that we are not singular. We're not one thing, me, or even my mind. But rather, whenever you turn your attention to the physical, the emotional, the perceptual, the volitional, or even to consciousness, you find that the more you attend to it, the more complex and diverse and protean that experience becomes. So when he talks of the rupakanda, the, the heap or the aggregate of materiality, it too breaks down. He'll talk of the, of the, of the four elements, earth, water, fire, air. Or he'll talk of what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch. What, again, the objects of the physical senses. The, phys- the, materi- the kanda of materiality the Rupakanda doesn't just refer to your body, it refers to your entire um, uh, participation in the material world. It has as much to do with what you, as, as sound, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, as it does with your awareness of being a body. When you go into feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When you, particularly when you go into sankara, the volitional elements, the active elements of your 
experience, that breaks down into numerous mental factors. When he describes the path, the practice, he talks of the 37 limbs of awakening. 37. When he talks of consciousness, he talks of six consciousnesses. He never speaks of consciousness in a kind of, as a singularity, as one thing. But it breaks down into component elements. And all of these elements, all of these different aspects of the kanda, of the skandhas, the aggregates, are seen to be impermanent. <clears throat> They're seen to be conditional. In other words, they don't exist in and of themselves as something, but rather they are the consequence, they're the emergent properties of an interactive body encountering an environment. And this is particularly true in the case of consciousness. Consciousness for the Buddha is inevitably a consciousness of something. And that, I think, is a remarkable observation given that it took... I think until about the early 20th century before Western philosophy came to the same conclusion. There's no such thing as consciousness kind of existing in and of itself or what we might call pure consciousness. Pure consciousness is unintelligible. If you are conscious, you're conscious of something. You're conscious of something physical or emotional or mental but you're always conscious of. And as soon as that object goes, ceases to be there, that consciousness ceases too. I'm conscious of that word exit in green above that door. But if I close my eyes, that consciousness has gone. I open them again and, oh, here again. And consciousness is also a conditional... Um, upon uh, the various elements that constitute it. When the Buddha analyzes consciousness internally, he finds out that it's made up of, of feelings, of, of contacts, of intentions, of perceptions, and of um, uh, uh, activity or attentions. It's a very, very primary insight into the... Um, uh, the, the fact that consciousness is not just one thing. Now, all of this, I think, goes to illustrate how the Buddha's teaching is founded upon um, another way of being in this complex world. Um, when he describes the practice of, of, med of meditation, um, particularly the meditation of mindfulness, which I think is his, his great contribution to the, um, <clears throat> uh, the religious traditions of India and perhaps we could even say humanity. Meditation does not have to do with peering and focusing deep into the sources of one's soul or one's mind or one's spirit, but rather it's about experiencing more fully, more totally, the phenomenal world um, of our everyday lives. And his meditation, therefore, doesn't begin with meditating on the mind or turning one's intention inward, but it begins with meditation on the body. So he says, and this is the Satipatthana Sutta, 
A monk who acts in full awareness does so when going forward and returning. He acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away. He acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, when eating, drinking, consuming and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. He acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. Now this must have come as a bit of a shock, particularly the bit about defecating and urinating. <laughs> that meditation for the Buddha is paying attention to what are considered mundane and perhaps even lowly and rather disgusting things. This is in, 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 in harsh contrast to the idea that meditation means re returning to the divine source of your own being. I'm going to stop there. Um, it's, we'll continue. I've, I haven't even started really, because what I really want to look at today are the, uh, what he means by the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, because that's the key. But I hope that um, what I've said uh, this morning at least gives you a sense that um, the Buddha seems to be talking about our spiritual religious uh, life in a very different way. Not only to what we find in Brahmanic orthodoxy, but also what we find as a kind of default in many spiritual and mystical and religious traditions. Um, let's have a period of feedback. Do you have any questions or comments? Or... And then we'll, then we'll have a short break at 11. Yes, Carolyn? Could you put um, a kind of a shading, or give us some alternative terms for truth for in, from the Pali? Like there's not one truth, but the four noble truths. So. Well, the word sacha means truth in the same way that we use that word in English. I don't think there's really a better way of doing it. Sometimes people have said the four noble realities. But the word satya does mean truth. And when uh, the word satya or satya in Sanskrit is used in a moral sense, and it is, I mean, it, it would be translated as truthfulness. Now, I don't think if, if we're going to be consistent in our choice of English term, that would mean, to if we translate satya as reality, in a moral sense, we don't talk about realityness. We talk about being truthful. So it does have to do with um, truth. Now the problem, as, we'll, as I'll come to later, is that the Buddha seems to be using the word truth um, in a way that, um, particularly when he talks of the Four Noble Truths, he's talking about truth he seems to be using the word truth in a very um, unfamiliar way. And in other words, I don't, the problem, when we think of truth, when we think of something is true, we usually think, again, just by default, we think that something is true if it corresponds to a state of affairs in the world. 
if we say Sacramento is the capital of California, that, is, that statement is true because it is the case that Sacramento is the capital of California. So in other words, uh, truth is seen to be um, a form of correspondence. Uh, it's called the correspondence theory of truth in Western philosophy. And so therefore, the first noble truth, um, which is usually rendered as, as there, there is suffering or life is suffering, we immediately think that that means that that claim, that statement, life is suffering, corresponds to a state of affairs in the world. It somehow matches what is in fact the case. And then the second noble truth, craving is the source of suffering, that too somehow corresponds to a state of affairs in reality. Therefore, that statement is true. I think the Buddha is not using the word truth in that way, but he's using it more in a pragmatic sense. In other words, it's true because it, this is true because it actually makes a positive difference to the quality of your life in this world. Now, that's the understanding of truth that you find in William James, in John Dewey, and more recently in the writings of Richard Rorty. It's called a pragmatic definition of truth. Uh, and it, it, although that is a very central part of American philosophical tradition, um, it's not an idea that is familiar probably to most Americans. In fact, it sounds odd. But I'll come back to that this afternoon. Yes? Uh, uh, I sort of have two questions. I was always under the impression that the Upanishads came at best around the time of the Buddha and possibly after. Um, so we comment a little bit on that. And also there seems to be a fascination in the Vipassana community with the whole uh, Vedanta and Vedanta teachers, a number of uh, Vipassana teachers who have studied under uh, Vedanta masters. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's going to add to the, uh, the uh, um, castle that we're building in Buddhism. I wonder mm -hmm. if you make some comments about that also. Um, well, there are many Upanishads. There's dozens of Upanishads, hundreds of Upanishads. But um, scholars now regard um, about f the earliest ones, and I mentioned two of them, Brijaranika and the Chandogya particularly, but about five or six others as, being, um, as having pre-existed the Buddha, possibly by 100 or 200 years. It's true that they arose with, at, within the same broad historical period. Now, the reason we can have some uh, confidence about that is because there are a number of passages in the Pali Canon that are quite explicit references, not explicit in the sense that the Buddha says in the ex Upanishad, but there are certain passages, there's quite a number of passages, in, in which the Buddha is um, clearly referring to uh, Upanishadic doctrines. Now, um, a good uh, a, a book on this is, was recently published last year by Richard Gombrich, who's a very erudite Pali scholar in England, called What the Buddha Thought. It's a spin on what the Buddha taught. And Gombrich was, in fact, a student of Walpola Rahula, who wrote What the Buddha Taught. Gombrich published last year What the Buddha Thought. And the aim of that book 
is to demonstrate by reference to Pali materials that the, uh, uh, how the Buddha was, Buddha's teachings are a response to the largely Upanishadic ideas that were current at his time. In other words, he, and I think, I think this is extremely important. The Buddha wasn't just bang enlightened one day as though it was in a void, as Buddhist tradition often suggests, actually. Uh, but rather was a, was a very self-conscious um, reflection and critique of Upanishadic tradition. Not only, uh, we, we're aware that he criticized Indian social structure. He criticized the caste system. But he also criticized the theology that underpinned the caste system. And in other words, he was reacting against uh, the primary uh, religious tendency of his own culture, that of the Brahmins. There's plenty of evidence in the Pali Canon to show that that was where he was, that, that was his starting point. And how he says at the end of his, um, uh, when he describes his awakening, he says, what I have, this Dhamma I have found goes against the stream. It goes against what people... He said, people won't get this. And I don't think he meant people won't get this because it's so terribly profound. But people won't get this because it's counterintuitive. It goes against what we assume. And my opening question and your answers kind of exposed the fact that what the Buddha did say is not what we, would ex we imagined him to be saying. The second point... Yes, it is true. There are many uh, of the teachers within the Vipassana uh, movement uh, in the United States and elsewhere who have uh, worked and studied with uh, the um, uh, various uh, teachers within Advaita Vedanta, particularly. And um, I find that a little puzzling, personally, uh, because I do not see these traditions as compatible. And um, at least sort of in a, from a philosophical point of view. Um, but I do want to differentiate between the, uh, between the efficacy of a particular practice, on the one hand, and um, uh, whether that practice is, strictly speaking, compatible with the early Buddhist canon on the other. But since I'm the kind of the house theologian, <laughs> I'm concerned with the second point. Um, I don't quite see how you can uh, really uh, 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 use these two discourses in a way that is um, intellectually compatible. Yes. So I want to go back to the notion of truth. Truth. And um, I know of a couple other suttas in which the Buddha refers to truth apparently separately from the Four Noble Truths, um, one of which is in the Atakavaga in mm -hmm. Sutta Nipata. And that one is particularly interesting. Um, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's in a discussion that the Buddha is having with someone who's saying, well, you know, all of these different teachers teach what are apparently different truths. Um, are there many truths? And the Buddha says, apart from something like apart from the idea of it, there are not many truths. The truth is one. And I'm curious what your uh, take well, on that um, 
Yeah, the, the, you will, f I mean, I'm, I'm quite aware that what I'm saying, you will find counter-statements within the canon that seem to sometimes say something else. Um, the Atakavaka, is it? The Atakavaka, the, the eights. Yes. The, 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 this is a very, very interesting text, and it's probably very early. Um, and in some senses, the eights, the eights is also a, a series of passages that are quite popular amongst those teachers who are interested in Advaita Vedanta. Um, and that is probably the section of the canon that uh, lends the greatest credence to uh, a sort of compatibility between those, those two approaches. I, I, I agree, agree with that. Um, but I am taking as primary um, the first sermon. That is where I want to start. And since that is traditionally where Buddhism starts, I don't think that's too controversial. Um, I think we're too early in the uh, scholarship of the Pali materials to be able to work out very precisely the different layers of, um, uh, of, of antiquity of the text. But, the, but I do accept that the passage that you refer to, the eights, is of, of, of considerable antiquity. You, that is known through both the analysis of the kind of Pali that is used and the fact that the Sutta Nipata is the only body of verses that is cited elsewhere in the canon where someone will say, what does this mean? The other thing I think one has to qualify this by is the fact that the Buddha, rather like Socrates, is always teaching in a dialogic context. The Buddha does not seem to have a kind of overarching sort of dogmatic theology that he seeks to impose in a uniform way on all situations. But it's very clear in reading, when you read these Pali discourses, that the Buddha's teaching is very usually in response to a particular situation. A particular person asks the Buddha a question, he gives an answer. And in other words, he's concerned with responding to the needs of a particular person in a particular place in a particular situation. And this is what then gives rise to lots of internal conflict within the canon itself. He seems to say one thing at one time and another thing at another. And on the surface, as simply statements, they seem to contradict. Now, you therefore have to ask, why? Now, is it because, in fact, he didn't really say this passage here, whereas he must have said that one there? I don't think so. I think the Buddha was uh, a genius in the sense that he was able to um, uh, respond to people's needs in a way that spoke deeply to their concerns and their situation as primary. He was concerned with resolving the issue of suffering, confusion, and so on, he used different strategies at different times. And so that would be another way of looking at this. But um, the, the, the working sort of hypothesis, or let's say the, uh, if I use a very technical term, the hermeneutical criterion, the, 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 one of the principles that I would use in asking, in, 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 in giving uh, more authority to some passages than others, would be what is there in the canon that cannot be derived from the teachings and the culture of the Buddha's time? What is it that is distinctive? What is it that is original in what the Buddha said? 
And that's where I would make my starting point. So I think that the teachings of the four truths, the teachings of dependent origination, the teachings of the practice of mindfulness, and the <coughs> emphasis on self-reliance are to me what is distinctive in what the Buddha taught from what was current in his time. So passages in which there is a, 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 a sense that what he's doing is a kind of, a kind of riff on, let's say, Vedantic ideas... I would not say that he didn't say that, but I would put it to one side as something that um, is, is sim simply not as original as what we find, say, in the Four Noble Truths. Um, that doesn't mean it's, it's not true, but in terms of this project I have to trying to get back to the foundations of the Dhamma, it is something I would put to one side. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? Over here, maybe. Yes. Uh, we need the microphone. It's difficult for me to articulate this or to put it um, well, but I'm just wondering what the relationship is between a, one of these truths and morality. 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 Mm -hmm. um, I believe that in a theistic tradition, something, if it's true, then that automatically confers on it a special moral authority and dictates a whole uh, series of behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, is it the same thing in Buddhism or... Because one of the truths being that the phenomenological world is impermanent and changing, mm -hmm. um, it would just seem that it wouldn't be quite as straightforward. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, that's, I, I, I think I understand the yeah. question. Um, you see, the, the advantage that a theistic tradition has is that it can claim that its God, whatever that God might be, um, is, as it were, the foundation for, for what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. In the Platonic sense, for example, um, you have a kind of a transcendent reality that is not part of the impermanent, changing, suffering world that somehow underwrites or underpins our sense of what is of truth, of justice, of morality, because those values somehow inhere within the nature of God himself. Now you find even in some of the Tibetan philosophies, particularly the philosophy of the Zhendong, um, where, where these people will say that um, uh, emptiness means emptiness of everything phenomenal in this world. By clearing it away, that uncovers um, uh, a kind of ultimate reality. They don't call it God, but it's getting very close, in which the Buddha qualities inhere. Now, that is very close to theism. But uh, the Buddha, um, certainly in these early texts, does not ground his sense of morality on an appeal to a transcendent source of morals. I believe that he uh, builds up his uh, understanding of what is moral by his analysis of suffering and what causes suffering. What is it that contributes to human anxiety, pain, 
um, uh, whether it be of subjective or whether it be that leads to actions that cause suffering to others and seeks to establish a morality on the basis of that through, an, through a more empirical analysis of uh, the origin of suffering. And so he seeks to pre uh, present, uh, so, 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 uh, so, so killing, let's say, or stealing, or sexually abusing, are to be avoided, beca not because they contradict a kind of moral truth that resides in God, but, or but go against the will of God, would be the Christian way of saying it, because they cause suffering, because they cause pain. And just as you do not wish to experience pain, nor does the other. There are several passages in the canon and some in the Sutta Nipata in which the Buddha basically prefigures the, that famous proposition of Christ, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. You find that already in Buddhism in many passages. Possibly it's the Christian tradition derived that idea from exposure to Buddhist ideas. But that would be the principle. We do good because we know that we do not wish to suffer and the other suffers just as I do. Therefore, I do not harm the other. So you don't need to appeal, therefore, to a transcendent ground for moral uh, value. So compassionate behavior is mor moral. I mean, it, um, as a response. Yes, uh, but not, I don't think compassion alone is adequate. The, the, the Buddha recognizes that moral acts arise both out of your, your empathetic identification with the suffering of the other, but also through an intelligent understanding of uh, the conditions that give rise to that suffering. So it requires intelligence and wisdom as well. Um, I mean, this is, I mean it's, a very, it's a very good question, and it's one that would take us off into something we could stay with for the rest of the day. Thank you. But we will come back to it when we look at the first noble truth. Yes, and then we'll break for... Could you pass the microphone to this gentleman with the glasses? Hi. Uh, just a quick question. My knowledge is sort of limited and somewhat scattered, but as far as I understand the... Uh, one of the Upanishads has the phrase tattva masi, I am it. I am it, yeah. You are I that. Am that. I am yeah. that. Mm. Which implies the... Um, tattva asi, yeah. Tattva Thou art that. Thou art that. Mm. So, and it implies an inner quest for mm -hmm. don't look for the solution outside mm -hmm. and find it within yourself by mm -hmm. sort of in quotes knowing thyself mm -hmm. um, or knowing the Four Noble Truths. But I just wanted to get back to your point about undifferentiated consciousness and whether the Buddha was talking about whether that is a possibility or not. That seems to be inherent in the Vedanta, this idea that you, you find, you go into deep dreamless sleep awake to find consciousness of no particular thing. And from what I thought I heard a little mm. bit earlier was sort of that this is also a constructive thing, mm -hmm. uh, consciousness, and that, that undifferentiated, undifferentiated consciousness isn't really a thing, per se. 
So I just wanted to get your take on that. Well, yes, I, my, my understanding is that the Buddha rejected the idea that there is some kind of primal, undifferentiated consciousness, which, of course, in the Upanishadic tradition is very fundamental. Um, Tatvam asi, thou art that, is basically acknowledging that you, your true self, is that divine self. There is no difference between you. And that divine self is often described in terms of a pure, undifferentiated awareness of all things, a sort of fundamental intelligence that animates not only you, but the universe. That, 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 that is God. Now, when the Buddha analyzed consciousness, he found that it wasn't like that, that it was uh, an, uh, an emergent property that came about through the interaction between an organism and an environment. And so his analysis of... Um, well, I'll read you out a passage here. This is Marjama 38. He says, Because consciousness is reckoned by the con- particular condition dependent on which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on eyes and forms, it is reckoned as eye consciousness. When it arises dependent upon ears and sounds, it is reckoned as audial consciousness. Just as fire is recognized by the particular condition dependent on which it burns. When fire depends on logs, it is called a log fire. When fire depends on grass, it is called a grass fire. When fire depends on dung, it is called a dung fire. Now this is a very clear example of how the Buddha saw consciousness, like everything else in the world, as a conditionally emergent, not something that exists in and of itself, in any kind of sort of a transcendent or primary way. And this, I think, is what is really striking in the Buddha's teaching. Uh, not only is it a clear um, critique of the idea of some transcendent consciousness that you would find in Vedanta. But also, I think, it's a, it's a critique of our own kind of deepest intuitions. We feel that there is a consciousness kind of shining out from in here somewhere, a witness, that is not dependent upon these conditions. It's just there. And that, I think, is the Buddha's most, most radical insight. It's amazing that he arrived at that. Because it's so against our common sense. No, I was just going to say, and it seems to be, it was a jab, particularly in the face of the Vedanta. Mm-hmm. To say, and he would use words that would be, they would use for, he'd use a different meaning for a, word, a common word. That's right, right, he did that a lot. He, and he took, I mean, the, the, in, in the Upanishads you find the word vijnana, vijnana, consciousness. Buddha uses the same word but he describes it in a radically different way. The Buddha takes the word karma, means one thing in Indian tradition, Brahmanic tradition, another thing in Buddhism. The Buddha uses the word unconditioned, which in Vedanta refers to God. For the Buddha it means something else. And um, he's a great... uh, 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 He's very, very good at, at transforming central ideas and terms of his culture and giving them a totally new meaning. Arya, which means, you know, meant had a sort of ethnic racial connotation in India at his time. He calls these the Arya Satya, the noble truths. 
But noble here doesn't mean because people of a certain racial or ethnic type find them true, but because by penetrating to these truths, one becomes ennobled. One finds a dignity that is nothing to do with your ethnic or racial type. The Buddha is a universalist. He's turning, uh, he's taking these terms that had a specific identity of particular castes of people and turning it on its head. No, everyone, all human beings, all sentient beings can be ennobled. So um, I do think it's important that um, we get a clearer understanding of where the Buddha stands in the Pali Canon vis-à-vis the Upanishadic traditions of, of his time. And I think we need not to muddle that up. And that's why I'm slightly concerned of sometimes how there seems to be a rather uncritical acceptance that Vedanta and Shankara and the Buddha, it's all the same thing. I think one of the reasons Buddhism collapsed in India around the 10th century was because it had become less and less distinctive and had come to look more and more like traditional Brahmanic philosophy. Uh, the, the person, I think, who probably dealt the death blow to Buddhism in India was Shankara Acharya, who was the founder of Advaita Vedanta. This is, 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 I think, is not, this is not my own idea. This is, scholars would largely agree that this was the case, that Shankara took Buddhist ideas of Mahayana uh, philosophy and used them to revitalize the Upanishadic tradition and then turned against Buddhism. So it's rather ironic that today people are now going back to Shankara, <laughs> who is effectively the person who helped destroy Buddhism in India. Let's have a break. Quick, quickly, pass the microphone to this lady here. I, I think we need a break. I, I, I need a break. <laughs> Is that on? But like Shankara had a huge influence in India in terms of re- reviving That's Hinduism, right. mm-hmm. and he traveled a lot around the country. And so, do you think there were some things that were incorporated from Buddhism? back into Hinduism and probably this is a much longer talk so Mm. I probably shouldn't ask it right now Um, what was the cross breeding between the two like things that Hinduism took from Buddhism, things Buddhism Mm -hmm. took from Hinduism and well well, let's just focus on Shankara, Shankara's teacher was a man called Gunupala or something I can't remember his name but Shankara's teacher actually studied with Buddhist teachers particularly teachers of what is called the mind-only school of Buddhist philosophy, the Chittamatra school. Now, the Chittamatra school of Buddhist philosophy, which was taught by people like Asanga, maintained that the nature of reality is that of mind. So that's quite a shift from what the Buddha originally said. And I think Asanga was already, in a way, shifting back to a more Vedantic-type view, and Buddhism was becoming more mind-centered, that the true reality was that of mind, of, of citta, of consciousness, of awareness, which is quite contrary to what you find in the Pali Canon. The Buddha doesn't say everything is of the nature of mind. Never. But Asanga does, and his followers do. And um, that development in Buddhist philosophy was, to a large extent, um, 
the consequence of the fact that Buddhists and non-Buddhists were constantly debating each other and involved in the development of logic and epistemology and philosophy and, became, and Buddhism became more and more one of the Indian religions. But there was still always a tension between the so-called Hindus, which is a word that wasn't used at that time, uh, and the Buddhists, uh, because the Buddhists rejected the caste system, the Buddhists rejected a, a lot of aspects of, 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 of Hindu culture. Um, Shankara was a genius, there's no question of that. He died, I think, at the age of 32, but he wrote this corpus of works and revived... He, he's the trigger of what's called the Brahmanic revival around the 10th, 11th centuries, which coincides with the ending of Buddhism. And Shankara was deeply critical of Buddhism, even though he adopted some philosophical ideas like the idea of the illusory nature of the world, maya. That was not an idea you find in the Upanishads. It was an idea that um, Shankara adopted probably from Nagarjuna and Asanga and others and turned and used it as a device to reinterpret the Upanishads and come up with this idea of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. Um, that is one example. There are many others, and unfortunately I'm not an historian of Indian religion, so I can't go much further than that in my knowledge, and I would start you know, saying silly things. Um, but this is something that is, um, you know, I think there's a lot of literature on this, but it is still you know, unclear as to exactly why Buddhism failed in India. There seemed to be. There was also the Muslim invasions that were occurring at around the same time. So it was the two things. You have the uh, Shangang Ankara's critique, the revival of Brahmanism, and then the Muslim armies sweeping in and. That's right. Well, it goes even further than that. If you. That's right. He was all over the place. But the, if you look at the demographics of India, the Indian subcontinent today, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kashmir, Bengal, are all Muslim areas. They were the strongholds of Buddhism at that time. Um, Buddhism was very vulnerable. Uh, it's not as though the mu- Muslims singled out the Buddhists. They wiped out anything. But the difference was the Buddhists were dependent upon communities of celibate monastics living outside the, um, uh, the cities, living outside the social fabric of Indian society. And so once you wipe out the monasteries, and monasteries don't stand up and fight, then you've more or less destroyed Buddhism. Whereas Hinduism is much more difficult to destroy because it was built into the social fabric of the society. So you can wipe out a few temples doesn't really matter because the Brahmin priests are not celibate monks. They have families and they are integral to the structure of the society so it could survive. So that, I think, is another reason. So we had these rather these convergence of these two destructive forces in the Indian subcontinent simultaneously, which Buddhism was unable to resist. And from that point on, it disappeared quite rapidly. Let's take a um, 15-minute break.